Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 688 with Chef Justin Turner. And paying credit where credit's due. You know, I, I never uh, want to feel like I'm the one who got to this place. I have definitely stood on the shoulders of many great people who have taught me all these things to get me here. It is my job, just like it was their job, to teach this to other people. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then, join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Ladies and gents, you've got to own your presence online because that's where your first impressions are made. Good thing there is Bento Box because Bento Box empowers restaurants to own their presence, profits, and relationships directly through their websites. To learn more about Bento Box and how it can empower you through your website, head over to getbento.com slash unstoppable. And because you are a restaurant unstoppable listeners, you'll save 50% off your setup fee. Again, that's getbento.com slash unstoppable. Margin Edge. It is the only restaurant management system to combine automatic invoice processing with POS and accounting integration, improving financial performance, visibility, and efficiency. In other words, with Margin Edge, you can finally run your restaurant without the massive paperwork nightmare. That sounds amazing. And all you have to do is snap a photo of the invoice with your smartphone. Because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy up to 50% off your first year. Go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Everybody loves payday, am I right? But loving your payroll provider, that's a different story. It's a little weird. Still, small businesses across the country love running payroll with Gusto. Gusto automatically files and pays your taxes. It's super easy to use, and you can add benefits and HR support to help take care of your team and keep your business safe. It's loyal, it's modern, and who knows, you might even fall in love. To learn more, head over to gusto.com slash unstoppable. And when you run your first payroll, you'll get your first three months free. Again, that's gusto.com slash unstoppable. What's going on unstoppables before I give you a teaser of what to expect in today's episode. One thing I need to be better about is reminding you to please use my links, specifically my sponsor links. We got some great sponsors, Bento, Gusto, and a new sponsor, Margin Edge. Uh, some great tools there. Uh, Gusto and Bento have been sponsoring the show for over a year. Let's show them some love. They've made this show possible. So if you guys have been fast forwarding the ads like I do, admittedly, I fast forward ads when I listen to podcasts. I think we all do it. But let's let's rewind and check them out and uh, say thank you by making sure we're clicking those links and learning more. And uh, today I have a great show for you. Justin Turner, uh, an amazing story of somebody who had no restaurant experience, who got in and had a natural inclination for it. Uh, from there, he was a personal chef for an NBA star. From there, he moved to Austin and uh, started a burger bus operation, a, a, a mobile burger bus operation. He scaled that thing to three buses. And then today he has four brick and mortars in uh, doing some really cool stuff in Houston. I think I might have said Austin before. I apologize. Houston, he's in Houston. And um, 
some key things that we pull from today's conversation, how to set up your, your kitchen station efficiently, uh, the rule of one and a half, what business relationships look like as a personal chef. Uh, we get into food trucks, uh, specifically how to scale a food truck and how to bring on a business partner who gives you operational control. We also talk about maybe food trucks not being the best option today, but they're still relevant when it comes to marketing and catering. We, we dive into some of the opportunities with uh, opening a ghost kitchen. We get into communicating your mission, vision, and passion. And then lastly, the challenges of scaling a, a scratch kitchen. So if that sounds interesting, enjoy today's show. Here it is. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Justin Turner. My man, Justin, are you feeling unstoppable today? Totally unstoppable. Totally unstoppable. Yes. Look out, guys. He's coming. <laughs> A Chicago native, Justin Turner, got his start in fine dining before serving for years as a private chef to NBA star Shane. Say his name for me. I don't want to destroy it. Battier. Battier. Thank you. When Shane yeah. was traded to the Rockets, Justin followed him to Houston. But when the baller moved on, the chef stayed, uh, converting a yellow school bus into one of Houston's first food trucks and naming it after his grandfather, Bernie's Burger Bus. His gourmet burgers and fries were wildly popular and led to a fleet of buses, a spot at the NRG Park, and now four brick-and-mortar locations. Man, I cannot wait to dive into your story to find out how you got to where you are today. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Uh, so something I learned early on uh, that is the driving force behind why I started uh, Bernie's Burger Bus was you've got to feed the masses mm. to eat with the classes. But if you feed the classes, you will eat with the masses. Say that one more time. <laughs> sure. So if you feed the masses, you, feed you, the masses. you will eat with the classes. You will eat with the classes. But if you feed the classes, you will eat with the masses. So... I worked for chefs in the fine dining side, and the, this in particular chef who told me this, his name is Miles McMath. Okay. Uh, awesome, awesome chef, my mentor. Um, he, uh, he told this to me in the midst of opening up a fine dining place, which I thought was hilarious because he had told me, hey, don't go out and serve this food where you're feeding 60 people a night. Try and find something you could do where you're feeding thousands of people a night. Mm. And uh, it, it struck home with me. Um, I saw a lot of chefs who did it the opposite way, who start their fine dining thing and then open up more casual places to you know, make more money <laughs> um, because so, it's tough. It's, yeah. it's a tough industry. In terms of economics, what's going on there? Why is he giving you this advice? Because I think when you scale down to that many guests, you know, every dollar... And, and it's the same with us, you know, as many guests as we serve, but every dollar is super important. Mm -hmm. The plates at a fine dining place are so expensive. The silverware, the glasses. And so you have such little room for air, and it's a special event to go out to one of these nice restaurants, unless you live in a huge, huge city that can yep. support it. So you don't get the steady flow of traffic. Yeah. And um, he had always told me, find a way to make something delicious that you could serve to thousands of people yeah. a day. And that's how you'll be successful. Yeah, and this is something that's come up on the show a lot. I mean, you see, and you see a lot of uh, fine dining or slow food chefs um, with their their baby, their passion project, right? And they're and they're they're surviving. They're they're busy every night, but they're they're still struggling to pay the bills because of 
just how expensive it is to run a, a, an operation, a full service operation to that scale. And then the, their second restaurant almost always tends to be something that serves the masses. That's like a barbecue joint or a burger joint or mm-hmm. a place that where they can make money to support the rest of the businesses. Right. right. And I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm pulling from that hundred percent economic standpoint. Yeah. And I wanted to do it the backwards way because I see people doing it the other way. And when I do my passion project, I want to be not thinking about money. I want to be thinking about the food and the people. Yeah. Um, and this was a way for me to do something I could feed to any class of people. And I felt um, I want to try opposite of what these guys are doing because they're struggling at their nice place. They're probably making poor decisions. Mm. And that's, you know. And that's, uh, when you're up against it, that's when those poor decisions start to creep in because you're desperate. And what desperity, do you do? Yeah. Like, yeah. You, you, you don't really have another choice. I think I might have cut you short. I apologize. No, no, no. But you're, you're 100% right. I mean, you... Um, you're faced with these horrible decisions of do I pay this bill or do I get this beautiful fish for service for the next two nights? And like you make a decision to get a shittier fish and it's like... And that's your new standard. Yeah. And, it's and your, then slowly the bar just gets lower and lower and lower. It's like boiling a frog in water, that analogy, right? Like yeah. if you throw a, a, a frog into boiling water, it's going to like scrape and scratch to get out. It's going to like... That's painting a really horrible picture. I apologize. But if you put a frog in like warm temperature water and you slowly turn on the heat, it will just stay in there calmly because like it, it sneaks up on it. Right. Correct. Same thing's happening in your business. We, this is, this is the success quote that we're still on right now. I know. I mean, this I'm is, sorry. This is, no, this is good, man. It's great. It's great stuff. Um, so where does it start to make sense to share your story? Like wh- when did you know that this was going to be your path? Early on. I mean, um, Really and truly, 18 was when I made the decision to just dive into the culinary world. But I lied on my application uh, at Wendy's when I was 15, uh, said I was 16. So I started working in the restaurant industry earlier than I legally could, but I did it anyways. And I loved it, uh, but I didn't know it. And I got some other odd-end jobs doing like a car... I was a car salesman for Saturn. Yeah. Um, I sold booze at a liquor store. Uh, well, you go back a little bit. You said you got started early, but you didn't know it. Um, yeah. Or some, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. What do you mean by that? So, you know, I get a job just because I could get a job at Wendy's. They hired oh, so me. You're pas- you didn't know that you were passionate. Correct. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. So Wendy's and then a, a place called Corky's Barbecue, both of them in Memphis. Um, I worked there. Didn't know I really liked it. Got some other odd-end jobs, and then I was uh, just turning 18, and I got a job at Outback Steakhouse okay. as a server. That's a great establishment. That's great. a great establishment. Uh, for a cook's perspective, one of the most organized kitchens. So it taught me a ton about organization, but I started there as a server, and they had a huge issue um, with the wait staff on a Friday night. Uh, not the wait staff. I'm sorry. The kitchen staff. And they knew that I had kitchen experience, and they said, "Hey, we need you to work blooming onions for the night because our guy's <laughs> gone." Yeah. So I jump back there, rock out, uh, end up helping the guy next to me who's doing the fry station separate to blooming onions, and they make comments right away. They're like, "Hey, we want this dude back in the kitchen." <laughs> so they get me on the schedule the next week, half in the kitchen, half on the floor. The week after that, all kitchen oh. and. Um, the kitchen manager at that time, awesome dude. I can't remember his name. Such a nice guy. He's like, 
He's like, you need to, you need to do this for a living. You're what, really what, good. Yeah, what will it take to make you do this more? Well, he was <laughs> telling me to get out of there. Oh, really? Yeah, he's like, man, you need to, you need to maybe go to culinary school. Yeah. Like, you have a passion for this. You you pick up um, the skill set really easy. You know how to grill a chicken breast, how to whatever, uh, how to grill a steak. I moved through their kitchen. All the way to the top of their kitchen within 60 days. Damn. Two months. That's two months crazy. I was inside Expo, which is the farthest you'll go besides kitchen manager at Outback. Yeah. What I want to pull from this story, and I think it's something that comes up a lot in the show, and I have a working theory that we don't know what our passion is until someone tells us what our passion is. And it's actually that act of being told, being seen, being recognized that we need. Mm-hmm. We need to be recognized for what we're good. Everybody needs... I mean, whether or not you want to admit it, it's one of those human needs, right? To be seen, to be recognized, to feel like you're contributing, to, to feel like you're adding value to the to the, to the tribe, right? Mm-hmm. And when somebody recognizes you publicly and says you're good at this, I mean, we don't know because it's relative to us. For us, like we just we have we're so close to it, we, we don't know that we have we're a good job at to it. do. Yeah. We need to be told we're good at it, right? right. And if if somebody's good at something. Take the time to let them know. You might be setting them up for the rest of their lives. It's mm-hmm. so, so important. Do you want to reflect on that? Yeah. I mean, uh, it's 100%. Like, if that, I, his name was Scott. I can't remember his last name. So, Scott, if you listen to this. It's because of you, brother. And, yeah, it's because of you that <laughs> I have this burger empire. Nice. Um, but, yeah, no, he, you know, he put something in me that I was like, you know what? I can do this. Nice. And I went to my mom. I said, Mom, I want to go to culinary school. She was like, nope, not going to happen. <laughs> She's like, your trade record with school sucks. and um, But I will do this. I'll split. There's a class in Memphis. It's two months long, taught by an amazing chef named Joseph Carey. And she said, I'll get you in that class if you pay for half of it. So I take this two-month class. Um, he hooks me up with a job, and, and it just... What was the job he hooked up with? Uh, at the best restaurant in Memphis at the time, uh, still one of the best restaurants in Memphis called Erling Jensen's, uh, the restaurant and Erling, uh, took a chance on me, literally kind of dishwasher slash clean shrimp and peel potatoes and clean leeks kind of job, um, paid nothing, but I told him I'll work for free off the clock. I'll work the scheduled hours you have, but I want to learn everything I can and he was really receptive to that. That was advice given to me by Chef Joseph Carey. What, what said, was the advice? Yeah, get into the advice he gave you. He said, don't ask for money. Don't, yes. Don't care about that shit. Learn the trade. Yes. Learn the skill, and the money will come. And show him you want it. I yeah, mean, passion. Early, whatever it takes, and this is something that comes up a lot on the show, whatever it takes to get your foot in the door of the best restaurant that you can physically get yourself to, right? Do whatever it takes to get in the door. Somebody's going to be on their way out eventually. And if you bust your ass and they like you, they're going to give you that opportunity. People in the restaurant industry don't like to put work into recruiting people. It's a lot of work. And they, if they have somebody on deck, you're going to get the opportunity if you have what it takes. 100%. And, uh, but you, but you got to be right. Like We always are We're looking at like, it's funny, when we're 15, 16, 17 years old, we're like, well, this job pays a dollar more an hour. And that's a huge deal when you're 17, 18 years old. But when you're looking at the big picture, like what? assets is this guy going to give me or this girl going to give me what skills are they going to teach me right yeah um so what were some of the biggest skills that this 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 first well this wasn't your first restaurant but um first like where i was taking it as a career so i treated it like school um sous chef there justin young uh jimmy gentry and shane bolton those three guys all culinary school um great uh mentors of mine as well i mean those guys 
They picked on me. They treated me like, you know, scum on the bottom of their shoe. Um, but they wanted to get that next level out of me. They knew that I could cook, that I loved cooking. But in a restaurant environment, when you're having to produce high-end food in a very short period of time, um, with a high level of, of uh, standards set forth, not only by the chef, but the sous chefs and the, the commis and everyone in that kitchen had a very high level. Um, they were the ones who kind of like taught me the skill set on how to look at a prep list correctly, how to take that prep list and find you know the stuff that's going to take me the longest to start first and see this the is the basics stuff, this is like really great stuff that I should be better about getting onto the the air like the, things like this so take us through that that process of um, efficiently going through inventory that you started getting to it starting with the the thing that takes the most time take it from there and then kind of take us through the process and why it makes sense to do it like that yeah so it's really important when you have your station right you go through your station you're like okay I need X amount of portions to go through tonight and, and um, make sure that I have enough to serve all the guests. So you write your list. Once the list is written, then you need to prioritize that list because certain things on that list just take a lot longer. You know, you only have a four hour period to prep those in. So if something takes three hour, three and a half hours, you better get your shit yeah. rolling. So I just want to in, in, uh, step in real quick. So sure. you're bringing your, your numbers up to your, basically you establish a par stock for every menu item or every ingredient or whatever you need to get through that shift. Right. Correct. And then you're bringing the, um, your rotating product, you're, you're, you're bringing what you need you bring it to that number, right? Correct. And then I just want to make sure I understood that correctly. Yeah. So like, let's just say I have five different salads on my station and all the components of that salad, I take inventory of, and I say each one of them, I'm going to go through 20 salads each. So I need to have enough to do 20 portions of each salad. Once my list is written on each ingredient that goes into those salads, then I think, okay, well the twills on this salad that I have to bake mold and do whatever, they're going to take me longest. So I'm going to start that. Second is the goat cheese tarts. I've got to get those in the oven because I need them to cool in time so that I could serve them at room temperature. Um, the vinaigrettes would always be the last thing because I could get a blender ready, all my yep. ingredients, and just start knocking uh-huh. those out. Um, but yeah, I, I really, those guys kind of brought in um, the honing of my skills when, when it comes to the list, my knife skills. I mean, they challenged me. I was always cutting herbs and cutting fingers. and um, I was always the grunt work. I remember this one time in particular, we had to do brunoise, which are an eighth of an inch by an eighth of an inch perfectly squared. And we had to have a crab bucket, which holds about a pound of crab meat. He said, chef came to me and said, I need a a crab bucket full of brunoise red peppers. I said, yes, chef. Knocked it out. He puts his finger through there, looks and sees that there's some that are not um, correct. He dumps the whole thing in a stock pot, says start all over. And, um, you know, it it was those moments in those kitchens that I could tell you the girlfriend I had at the time was like, probably, you know, she hated me. Um, (laughs) I would come home crying um, and upset, you know, wanting to quit like this is too hard. And... um, I went back every day, though. Why did you keep going back? I hate, like, I didn't want, honestly, I didn't want those guys to be like, you're a pussy. <laughs> you know? Like, I, I had so much respect, especially for Justin Young, because he was the head of, there's two sous chefs, Jimmy and Justin. Um, 
but Justin really was the more experienced. Um, he had more um, time spent abroad, and his, you know, I could tell he wanted me to succeed, um, but he didn't give me any room um, f- for mistakes. He yeah. he let me know immediately you're fucking this up. Yeah, and um, I didn't want to let him down. Mm. The chef Erling was, you know, challenging on his own, but. Justin was the one in that kitchen, in particular those two year year and a half that I was with him. Man, it was uh, it was a very uh, it was challenging, but it was also I know that's where I got all my yeah. cooking skills. So I, I think this is a skill that chefs develop this ability to push, but to, to to know where that line is, right, and to not push too far, but to push just hard enough. That to this person's whatever that person's brink is right mm-hmm. to, to force them to grow, but also to communicate that you love them in the same time. Yeah, right. How do you, like what what's going on there? Like, what have you learned about how to do that? How are you doing that in your business? How do you gauge people and know their their breaking point? How do you know to walk that line? It's a, such a good question because it's so different. <laughs> yeah, now than twenty years ago when I was doing this. You know, twenty years ago you could say some stuff to people. You might even get a little physical with them. Um, I know I got there's the pastry chef in that kitchen got very physical with me, um, and you can't do that nowadays. So there's a different mentality I've taken, and honestly, since I was 23 when I got my first kitchen, I I knew I treated guys just like they treated me. It didn't work out, and I knew that I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So, um, flash forwarding, I know we're going to kind of go through the story, but. One of my other mentors, uh, who I got to the pleasure of working for, he was the prime example of teaching me, um, you know what? I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. <laughs> and that shit stuck with me so good. I employ that to all these guys. Yeah. And that is my take, is I'm the father. And damn it, I'm, I'm so disappointed in you. And that, like, that mentality is kind of how I work with these guys. I want to stay on the same level with them. Yeah. Um, and I have a high expectation for them. And when they let me down, I don't fly off the handle and right. break shit and yell and scream. I'm just like, man, is, is what you're seeing is uh, resonating really closely with what, uh, I just absorbed from uh, chef, not chef, uh, uh, Chris Schultz, CEO of voodoo donuts talking so- about something similar. He says, you know, I just, what I just tell people like, is that, is that right? And nine times out of ten, they know it's not right. Mm-hmm. And like he doesn't even have to say, "It's like, is that right?" And like they're like, and you know, like it's just constantly like knowing what the standard is, not even necessarily talking down to them, but I think it communicates the same thing. Totally. Like you know, with in two in three words, is that right? I'm stealing I'm, that. Uh, yeah, like I'm disappointed in you. You Thank know, you, like Chris. you know that's not right. So like do it right. You know, and that's it. That's all you have to say. But it communicates so much, right? Absolutely, I love it. Same thing. I love it. Um, so. Any other key mentors, key lessons early in your career that make sense to, to bring to this conversation, to bring to the surface before moving on to the next role in your life? Yeah, you know, I moved from Erling's Kitchen, and I got fortunate enough to work for my uh, mentor, Miles McMath. He was uh, the executive chef of a country club in Memphis called Colonial Country Club. Um, he taught me the business end of things. He ran five restaurants out of one kitchen okay so this country club had outlets the women's grill the men's grill the main kitchen which uh, served three restaurants out of there 
So really had six, and then we had the outpost in the pool area of the country club that did like hot dogs, hamburgers, stuff like that. But he had to do all the ordering. He had to do, and I was his sous chef. And so I would always ask him, how do you do this? How do you know? And he taught me par systems. He taught me um, how to do inventory properly, how to, um, to you know, kind of uh, have some foresight into how you schedule and how you order for certain events. Um, it was a real good crash course for a year of like how to run the business side of the restaurant, which was great because I went from two years with this great chef and multiple chefs in his restaurant learning the culinary side. Then I got to work for this guy still doing the culinary stuff, but really More heavily like focused on how, how, do you, how do you maintain a 27% food cost? with the budget that a country club sets. How do you keep your labor at 26%? Um, and then from there, how do you take the leftovers of what you got and turn it into something delicious? I think some of that's going to come out later in the conversation because sure. those are some of the questions I marked down because I know you do, you're a scratch kitchen, right? 100%. And, and you're scaling now four locations. Uh, I'm really curious on how you're keeping your costs down, labor costs specifically when it comes to scratch putting that on the back burner for now. Sure. Um, one thing that you you shared that I think needs to be highlighted is the significance of just being a sponge. When you're in these restaurants and you're working for these masters, these people have dedicated their lives to the, the craft. Ask questions. Mm-hmm. Ask questions. You cannot ask too many questions. Um, and, you know, it's just so many things. You, you can, like, that can be your entire education. Right per- I tell people all the time, you don't have to go to culinary school to learn everything you need in the restaurant industry. If you're open to it. Yeah. I'm still, I run my own business. I listen to everybody. This is one of those businesses that's, you never stop learning. You never start getting, stop getting better at your craft, not only in the culinary side, but the business side of it. I've learned a ton. Um, and I think that is the key for anyone young who's starting off. Keep your mind open. Be, be, you know, accepting of criticism too you know a lot of people tend to like put their nose up and be like i'm better than this and no <laughs> listen learn everyone gets better from that yeah, stuff. even like the wendy's that those portions of your life like 100 percent. you know when you scale to thousands of locations across the world you're pretty naive to think you can't learn anything you know like especially Absolutely. when it comes to like uh, systems and processes right um, i'm sure you're probably leveraging some of those systems you learn to this All day of them. Yeah. yeah um so what, what was the uh, chef uh, miles right yes so he, he mentioned something or you mentioned something that he taught you specifically around ordering mm-hmm. um planning ahead is there any like specific details you can give us uh, a lesson that he gave you way back then that you can share with us now you know the the rule of one and a half so like um i always uh plan every event that i do based on his kind of math of one and a half so like i'm doing a catering and let's just say um they have a hundred people for easy numbers i always typically have enough for about 150 150. (laughs) because there is always that like there's that uh component right yeah um there's there's events uh you know like when we're planning on a day just a regular you know wednesday afternoon um, we always have a half portion more than what we yeah. typically Ugh, will. A bus just pulled up. Always. Ugh, we burnt the first batch. Yes. Oh, like there's gonna like we don't live in the perfect world. You Correct. can't 
plan for perfect scenarios. You got to plan for like backup plans. You backup know? plans for backup plans is what he yeah. used to say. So, yeah, exactly. Um, we, you know, uh, I take that to heart with how we, and you know, knock on wood, I haven't run out of shit really. <laughs> um, and we do this all in one store, so it's like. Uh, his method has helped me from one truck to nice. the four restaurants and in it that I don't want to represent that I can't uh, provide the product yeah. to the to the people. If they want it, I have it. So. Nice. Thank you for that nugget. Anything else before we transition to the next section in your life? I think that's it. So this is this next section is your first business technically, right? Yeah. So I think now is a, uh, a good spot to take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right Imagine if processing invoices was as easy as snapping a photo with your smartphone. Oh my gosh, that'd be nice. Well, with Margin Edge, it is that easy. You snap a photo of the invoice and Margin Edge takes it from there. Every line item in every handwritten note is captured. Margin Edge then integrates with your POS so each day you know everything you bought and everything you sold. With Margin Edge, you get a rolling P&L with drill down capabilities and it flows effortlessly to your accounting system of choice. That's pretty nice. So what does this mean to you? It means you can run your restaurant without the massive paperwork nightmare. It means getting your team back to creating memorable experiences for your guests. It means having your purchase and sales data in one place immediately for effective and rapid decision making. So if we have your attention, go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners, you can enjoy 50% off your first year. Go to me.marginedge.com slash unstoppable. Okay, we're back. And your first business, um, what was it? So uh, it, it, it was a burger bus, but not we, a truck. We totally skipped over the oh, shit, whole shift thing. Yeah. Oh, you're a personal... You're so that really wasn't chef. my business. Oh, okay. Yeah. So... Um, but you, were you hired by somebody? Or? I was hired by a basketball player. So... But um, you had a charge... Like, there must have been some type of legal entity going on there, right? No. So he set up his own company, set okay. up an LLC, and that LLC was the company that hired me... Got you. ...to be an uh, employee... Well, this is actually like a really interesting scenario, something that doesn't come up a lot. Like, what do you need to be set up to be a personal chef or somebody? You know, for me, it was like uh, my experience was set up very much like a standard employee. So this guy set up an LLC. He set up um, a payroll company. And so my taxes were taken out just like a standard check. I was treated just like an employee. I had... um, Benefits as well, like nice. insurance and 401k. Um, so, yeah, I had uh, very much, it was nothing on my setup. I literally just became an employee for this person. But we can go even further back. <laughs> for one, two months, I was a personal chef for a basketball player named Jason Williams. Okay. Probably doesn't have it in your notes. No, I didn't um, see those notes. So, Jason Williams was another basketball player for the Memphis Grizzlies. I got the job um, while working at the country club, four okay. miles, and I did it for two months, and literally all I was was his errand boy. I'd go pick up food and drop it off. I never cooked. He would want food 20 minutes from when he <laughs> called me, and he would I'm want hungry. ribs and yeah. Yeah, stuff that I couldn't pull off in 20 minutes. Yeah. So I did it for two months. Great pay. Brisket. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... 
yeah, I did that for a couple months. I told him, you know, hey, this is not for me. Like I left there. You need an assistant, not yeah, a chef. Yeah, exactly. Let me do you a favor. Yeah. And I told myself when I left that job, I'm never going to fucking work for these guys again. <laughs> like, there's no way that I'm going to work for a basketball player ever again. Why is that? Because um, I just thought it was going to be just like that. Like, yeah. I had to cook for his entourage. Yeah. So I'd be done cooking for Jason. And I get a phone call from someone else who was a part of his staff. And they'd be like, hey, I want steak. Al- yeah, I want duck a la orange. <laughs> yeah. And then someone else would call me the same night and be like, I want beef Wellington. And like, they would make me cook. And he would make asshole. me go get Taco Bell. You know, it was like it was the most backwards thing. I'd well, ever- how do you like? I mean, how do you talk yourself? Because at the end of the day, you are providing a service, right? Yeah, it is your job to do that. And I feel like people probably abuse it. Yeah, like the friends and the, the friends of the friends. They're like, oh, you mean I can ask whatever I want ever? Like, let's see what this guy got. Like, what what can he do? Right? Yeah. How do you talk yourself off the cliff when you're being kind of? You know, I mean, it's your job, but you know, and paid very well. And people do abuse it a little bit, maybe. Like, like, how do you, like, when when you're when you like, you know, grit your teeth and you make that fist, like, how do you tuck yourself off the cliff? You know, for me, it was one event. Um, His wife and we're good, all good friends. So, his wife calls me up one morning at like five thirty, and she goes, "I want oatmeal for breakfast." Okay, there's oatmeal in the uh, cupboard. You have a hot water tap. Literally, <laughs> it's boiling. And there's a measuring cup next to that tap. Like, just put a half a cup in there and you're good to go. Is this what you told her? Yeah. Ooh. And she's like, I fucking pay you good money to cook for me. And I go, you don't you don't pay me to be your bitch. And I was like, I guess this is the end of our relationship. <laughs> and her husband calls me up when he wakes up like 9, 10 o'clock. And he's like, dude, I don't want to let you go. But I was like... I quit. Like, I don't want to do this. And so I went over to the house, got my money that they owed me for the groceries. And um, flash forward, you know, I end up working for this other basketball player. They come to dinner like second month I'm working for this Ooh. guy. And I'm telling you, I felt so awkward. I bet. Uh, but the, the baddies had heard the story. They knew what was going on. They laughed. Um <laughs> And his wife comes in. The first thing she does is come and gives me like a huge hug and a kiss. Oh, man. And she makes me feel great. And I've seen them probably four or five times past then. And they never bring it up. It's, you know, it's not even a thing. They ate the delicious food that I cooked for the baddies. <laughs> didn't complain. So uh, any other advice you have for somebody who might be thinking that the private chef life is for me anything that is maybe not common knowledge or things that most people don't consider that's worth considering uh if you're getting into that vertical the likelihood of you getting a player like i did is probably one in 20 bad ear yeah i mean he was a foodie loved wine loved to entertain i was able to have summers off Nobody gets. I've heard of tons of people. I've know tons of people who have personal chef jobs. They don't have the same experience I do. Uh, I think the the thing that is the hardest is when you go from cooking for so many people every day to just typically cooking for two or three people a day is it is challenging in the mental way that you're like, man, I, I, you as a chef, you have to have some self worth and like. Your prep list, your what you got to tackle, getting through service. There's like that fulfills something in you. When you go to cook for three people, it, there's there's less of a fulfillment there 
Because it's not hard to cook for two, three people. It's not hard to prep. That's interesting. I th- I would think it would be like more rewarding to cook for two to three people because not for me. Yeah, I'm I mean, a different just goes breed. To show that everybody's different. Yeah, I, I like working. Yeah, you know, um, I I I kind of like you know. Every time I, I want to throw myself into a project, I want to put in 90 to 100 yeah. hours. I want <laughs> to have calluses on my feet. I want to have burns and cuts. Like, I'm sick like that. I, I love it, though. That's yeah. great, man. So um, what, would, what made you move? It sounds like you had a really great situation going here. Amazing. Uh, he, I guess the story goes, from what I gathered, is he was uh, traded to the Grizzlies back up to Tennessee. Is that what it was? So he, no, he was drafted. Okay. Um, so Vancouver had a team. Uh, this goes back a while, maybe 15, 18 years ago. 19 years ago, Vancouver had a team. They moved from Vancouver to Memphis the year he was drafted into the NBA from Duke University. So he gets drafted basically to Vancouver, but the team moves to Memphis. Um, he's with Memphis for basically two years. S- sneaks his way into this restaurant that I am uh, helping transition the menu from the old. Club? No, this is a couple years after that. This is I moved to a restaurant in uh, Illinois called um, Montgomery's on the Square. This was my first executive chef job at 23. I did that for a year, came back to work for Miles. He had opened up his own restaurant uh, called Timbo's on the Square, and it was an upscale Creole steakhouse, and he needed a sous chef and a pastry chef, and I could fulfill both those roles. So I come back to work for him, help him out, get offered a job at uh, this really nice uh, French restaurant called Cafe Society, and the owner, Michelle, had a chef with him for like 20 years. Guy's about to retire. He wants to revamp the menu. He's redoing the restaurant. He wants to focus heavily on seafood. And so I come in. I change the menu. Shane comes in and is eating there and is talking to the bartender. And his wife and the bartender become friends. Uh, Her name is Leanne. And and they say to Leanne, who's cooking this food? And she's like, hey, we got this new guy. He's Justin. He's really energetic and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, would he be interested in cooking meals and dropping them off at my house? And I said, yeah, sure. Why not? And so a couple days later, I get a call during service and Shane calls me. He's like, hey, this is Shane Battier. I was like, yeah, bullshit. (laughs) I thought it was my friend Josh or somebody, you know, (laughs) fooling with me because it was a uh, unknown number. And he's like, no, it's Shane. And he's like, I'd love for you to, you know, what, what would it take for you to cook meals and drop them off at my house? And I said, to be honest with you, Shane... I don't think that's what you're looking for. And he's like, what do you mean? I said, you're not going to get nutrition out of that. You're going to be reheating something that's already cooked. So you'll get calories and protein, but you won't get any of the nutrients. And he was like, okay, you want to cook at my house (laughs) for me like every day? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And he's like, okay. So I get invited to do a dinner for his wife, him, and his personal assistant. And at the end of dinner, he hands me a key to his house and says... You're hired. I mean, I think that's pretty cool too. It was awesome. Is, is uh, we can learn a lot from successful people. I mean, he's successful in, in basketball, but I mean, it clearly sounds like he's a smart individual who's got structure in his life. And just like to hand somebody like a keys to their house, like extending that trust. Right? Did you learn anything else like this from him? Shane is one of the most intelligent. He's 41. I'm 40. He's we were say, you know same age. He is 10 years ahead of himself. He yeah. was a uh, theology major at Duke, graduated with a theology degree. Um, 
super intelligent on the spiritual side of life. Yeah. But from a business standpoint, he had, you know, several businesses while I worked for him that he was an investor in. So I kind of learned how he approached that. Um, but really how he managed me, the, um, the making me feel guilty for making mistakes type, uh, (laughs) stuff. Um, well, you got to keep in mind, I mean, somebody of this caliber has been being coached by incredible people their entire life. Mike Krzyzewski? Yeah. Like, you seriously. Like, you, you don't think they're going to pick up on something? Oh, know? and I know that he got that from yeah. Coach K. Like, <laughs> they've, I've heard stories, and it sounds just like a Coach K thing. Yeah. But, man, you know, I became his uh, – so when I he got traded from – I was his chef in Memphis for three years. Um, and then he got traded to the Rockets and asked me to come with him. But his assistant was in her late 70s and did not want to move from Memphis. She had family there. So he said, hey, do you want to take on the roles of the personal assistant as well? So I said, yeah, absolutely. And I've made mistakes. Yeah. And that's when those times of conversation <laughs> would come in. Um, was 99% of the time, if there was a mistake, it was in that area and not in the kitchen. Uh, I'd been late for a few things. But essentially, um, it was the personal assistant stuff. And I have to say, besides that lesson, just how he had me manage his office, organization, um, all of it just kind of like reinforced the stuff that Miles was teaching me. Um, You could tell that while he was successful, it's because he was so organized and had all these things kind of, you know, he was able to uh, leverage people's abilities versus being a delegator, Mm. which I found was... Uh, a really good um, trait to have. You know, if you could take people and take advantage of their strengths and not be this like guy who has a list and you got to follow up and follow up and do that, he would take advantage of my abilities and use that to his advantage. And that, without him directly telling me that, I know that's what he was doing. And I. I implore that same method here. I mean, there's at work. nothing wrong with that, though. No, I mean, we're meant. I mean, we're meant to, to function in units. Hundred percent. Like we by ourselves are not the strongest. We can't do it all. But when you put a group of ten people together, and if each one of those ten people has a unique set of skills, that unit together is so much more powerful because we complete each other, right? And like you got to see people for their strengths because it's up to you to bring those strengths out to the surface. They might not even know that they're strong on those things unless you identify it. Right. We talked about this earlier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anything else you can share? I mean, we haven't even talked about your, your business. I know. Uh, but that's fine. I'm loving the conversation. So, yeah. So we, you know, he, we get here to Houston and, um, I start getting the itch mm. and that itch was like, I need to get back in a restaurant and I had done it in Memphis. I had done it, um, in a dual capacity where I was a chef at the restaurant as well as his personal chef. And when I picked up the personal assistant role, I dropped all restaurant stuff. So I didn't meet anybody here in the restaurant industry in Houston for the first four years I was here. And um, I decided to go look for a secondary job. And that's kind of the jump into me starting my own thing because no one would hire me. I was willing to do the same thing I did back when I was a teenager. I'll work for free. You know, I'll stage. I'll come show you. And I went to the two top chefs in Houston at the time and probably still considered uh, some of the top chefs, Chris Shepard and uh, Brian Caswell. 
I asked them for a job. Both of them told me no. Said One of them in particular said, you're a personal chef. You, you're not going to be able to hang in our kitchen. Mm. And so it stuck with me enough to where I was like, you know what? Fuck this. I'm not working for anybody else. I'm going to figure out how to do something on my own. I leave Houston for a trip to go visit my brother in Portland. I'm hanging out with him. What's the year now? 2009. Gotcha. Thank you. So 2009, I'm um, hanging out with my stepbrother in Portland. He starts taking me to the street food scene in Portland. And I see all these like trailers. And there's like parking lots full of these trailers. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. And I have the idea because I've seen what goes on in Austin too around this time. There's a lot of food trucks popping up. South Congress is getting hot. There's a food truck that's now a huge empire called Torchy's Tacos. Yeah. They had just kind of uh, broke out of the... Uh, I'm trying to get Ripka on the show, by the way. I could like, help with that. Really? Yes. Oh, man. This is why you got to say things out loud. Yeah. This is why... Yeah. Okay. I could help with that. So we'll, we'll talk about that. <laughs> cool. So, um, yeah, we... Um, I see the, the thing going on in Austin. I see Portland. And I think to myself, I'm going to come back to Houston. I'm going to I'm going to rent a parking lot or buy a parking lot. I'm going to set up five or six trailers of my own, different things, have one commissary kitchen, put out different products and it'll be my own little food court. Well, I get to Houston, Houston's like that's not a good idea. Permits. We're not going to do that. <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm like, man, there's still no food trucks here. Why why do you think it is? What was going on in Houston that was different than say Austin? You know, there was the taco truck scene here and there was a lot of um kind of backlash uh, on how the laws were set up um, and the taco trucks kind of ran, ran a little rogue. Um, they would set up in you know gas station parking lots and they won't leave. Somebody wasn't getting their cut. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, there was the laws had kind of been geared towards that style of business. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I think no offense to anyone in Texas, but I think everyone's a little behind when it comes to the times. L.A. had already had the food truck scene for like four or five years. And I felt like Austin kind of picked up on it and was like, yeah, let's do that. And Houston was just a little behind that well, curve. It's, like, it's just like the culture of Houston. I mean, I'm not a huge historian on Texas culture, mm-hmm. but I feel like just the vibe I get from Houston is a little more right wing, a little more yes. buttoned up, a little more let's throw money at it. Whereas Austin's a little more left and a little more creative and like, let's just be hippies and figure it out. Yeah. I, th- I think you hit it even, <laughs> yeah, right on the head. I'm new to the area, but, but you're, you're right. Up on these things. And you know, we faced a lot of battles early on as a food truck with the restaurant association and the money that they threw towards the food truck. But I saw a, a niche in the market and not only that food network was starting a show called the great food truck race season one. Mm-hmm. And that was coming out in 2010. And so um, I had met a girl um, who um, ended up being my son's mom. And it was kind of latching to me to stay here in Texas. Shane had already kind of mentioned to me, I don't know what the Rockets are thinking. I might be traded. And I didn't know if I wanted to leave and follow him another time. And so I'd already had the idea of having a second job. And so I said, you know what? I want to do a food truck and I'm going to do it on the side. And um, when he's out of town, I'll run it and whatever. 
And so I started thinking of what do I want to do for food because it can't be a taco. I'm not going to play the taco game. Um, I, I think it's got to be either pizza or a hot dog or a hamburger. And I feel like that's the most approachable thing. And I said, hot dog, I don't necessarily want to mess with that. Pizza, I don't know if I could pull that off in a food truck as good as I could in a restaurant. But a burger, man, I can grind my own meat. I can make my own ketchup and mustard and mayonnaise and pickles. And I can make it very unique to to me and make the experience of eating a hamburger at my place very unique. And I had this story in the back of my head that my grandfather, he started some businesses in Chicago and he named him after his father-in-law. And his father-in-law was named Jack. And um, he had a liquor store named Jack's Liquors. And he had a clothing store named Jack's Fine Clothing. And it was a women's clothing store in Waukegan, Illinois, just a north suburb of Chicago. And I was like 10. And I heard, I've, all I've heard his name was Papa, what I called him, and Jack. Because everyone called him Jack. So my grandmother starts screaming out Bernie one day. Who the heck is Bernie? It's like, it's your grandfather. They told me the story, and I was like, well, why do you let people call you Jack? He's like, it's my alias. I was like, that's awesome. And I'm stealing that. And, you know, I didn't think back then. I kind of named, said, I'm, you know, I'm going to name my own business after you. And we chuckled about it. And I was like, Bernie's Burgers. Nice. That's good. But Bernie's Burger Truck sucks. <laughs> Let's do Bernie's Burger Bus. There we go. And triple so, B. yeah, Triple B. And I thought I can get a, a, a school bus and keep the school theme. And so, yeah, that's how the concept got note, you know, put on the notepad that night. Um, came up with the name, the concept, how I wanted it to be done. I slept on it. I got up the next day. I went down to. Um, a friend of mine told me about these guys who build food trucks, went and talked to them. And I was like, I want to do a school bus. They're like, no, <laughs> it won't fit. Nothing will fit. And I was like, yeah, it'll work. And I'm like, I, I, I could see you could put a cooler somewhere like this and that. And I'm looking in one of their trucks. And I'm like, yeah, you can do this in a bus. And they're like, I, I don't think so. So like everything in my life, I'm like, no, I, I'm going to do it. And so I went and bought a bus. Nice. For like 3,200 yeah. 3, bucks. Okay. And what condition was it in? It was a 1988 international school bus that had 166,000 miles on the second engine. I wonder how many stops and goes the thing. Uh, dude, <laughs> that bus was horrible. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, I've replaced so many tires and oh, two man. engines in that bus. But Anyways, still low overhead, right? Super low to start off. So I convinced these guys. I show up with the bus. They're like, you're a crazy white dude. And I'm like, yeah. But we rip out the seats and we take some blue painters tape and I lay out, let's put a grill here. Yeah. Let's put a cooler here. Let's put a freezer here. Put a table here. We'll cut out this window and that'll be my serving window. The rest will board up with steel and block it off. And yeah, they were like, okay, we'll do it. And um, it was uh, it was crazy. I, I threw it together. This is, let's say, April of 2010. Yep. Um, by July of 2010, I've already got them building it out. By September of 2010, I'm getting so many requests for 
caterings and parties. So you're not even open at this point. I'm not even open. Just I started marketing. Room or rumors spreading that there's going to be a burger bus. There's a burger truck. And, oh, we can come and do caterings and stuff like that. And so I technically don't even open here in Houston. The girl that I was seeing, uh, my son's mom, was living in Austin. She convinced me to open this up in Austin. And I go to Austin to search out a site. I'm going to do Austin City Limits Music Festival for my opening weekend. Found a spot. Found a secondary late night spot. And um, they tell me, okay, um, you have to get the permits. And I say, yeah, no problem. Have the truck finished build. I drive it out to Austin. I fail. Uh, They're telling me that my gas... Uh, my propane gas has to be built into the bus. It can't be sticking outside Ooh. of the bus. About a $15,000 overhaul. I'm like crushed sitting on the side. So of, up to this point, how much did you put in? The 3800 $3, for the bus. And then I'm assuming the build out. Was, all in, I think I had spent forty grand. Yeah. And was this money that you had to borrow or did you put no, it away? No, this is savings. Smart. Um, and this is my money. And, and so... Um, I'm crushed because I don't have enough. That's operating capital and living capital. And um, I'm sitting on the side of the street at the permitting office in Austin, literally in tears because I'm like, I have all this deposits down for ACL. I've got people coming from Houston to help me cook for the weekend. And the fire marshal comes up to me and is like, hey, dude, don't get upset. Just get a temporary. <laughs> He's like, you don't even have to be inspected. So... What do you uh, mean a temporary? Temporary. It's a temporary food permit, and they don't even inspect you. Oh. So I had the weekend. I I paid, which would have been fifteen hundred dollars for the permit. I paid ninety bucks for the weekend. <laughs> um, but what it did is it forced me not to stay in Austin and make me come back to Houston because the permitting was different. Because the permitting was okay. different, and I built my truck for Houston permits, and these guys were up to code with what Houston wanted for food trucks. So I came back here, got a permit immediately. But I think he probably would have been better off in Houston because, 100%. because th- there was a lot of noise in Austin at that time. Yeah, it had been a future. small fish in a big exactly. pond. Now yeah. I'm a big fish in a small exactly. pond. Exactly. So. Exactly. Is that what, that's what I was thinking. So um, any lessons um, learned about building out a food truck? Anything that you wish you had known before getting into it uh, that you would have been... Yeah, anything you can give my listeners, like, just be aware of this. Buy a new truck. <laughs> Whatever you do, buy a new truck. Change your brakes, change your suspension, because no truck or bus was meant to hold the amount of weight that it, the the equipment is, as well as the employees and food and all yeah. that. So a lot of issues I had was um, time on the street. I spent a lot of time in the shop. So not only was I losing out on sales, but I was paying my staff to stay with me and not go get another job, even without sales coming in, because I... A lot of my cooks have been with me since the beginning. Yeah. And so um, I wanted to make sure that they always had money and not go leave and find a job that's more stable. So um, heavy capital and a brand new truck. Don't be <laughs> undercapitalized. I, that yeah. is the hardest thing in this business. And I would say that from a food truck to a restaurant, don't be undercapitalized. It's the one and a half rule. Yeah. You know, it applies to being capitalized, getting the, the money. Like whatever you think it's going to take. Add 50%. Yes. Because there's always something you're going to miss. Always. (laughs) And you have slow times. So like, you know, I think for most people, there's no cushion involved. They don't plan on having six months worth of payroll in the bank before they open up. 
because you don't know what's going to happen, you know. And that was a big thing. The first year we were open in 2010, or actually, I'm sorry, the full year would be I opened in October of 2010. But come into 2011 in Houston, it's like the longest amount of time without rain. So I'm open all the time. Nice. The following year, though, 2012, 13, 14, like I was open maybe a total of 170 days with weather and uh, being in the shop. Wow. So, you know, Houston's really hard because they make you move around every 24 hours. Austin, you could park for 364 days. And one day a year, you have to take your yeah. trailer or truck to get a permit. Houston, you have to get a new green slip every day. And that's, one, it's 16 bucks a day. But also, um, you have to keep moving your truck. So you're putting this wear and tear on a vehicle that wasn't made yeah, for holding it. that. Yeah. So get a new truck. Be Have plenty of capital, both for yourself to live off of and, and to run the business. Uh, by far, my... Best advice for a food truck, restaurant, opening up a, a real estate business, whatever. Be be prepared. Yeah. So at what point you had a few trucks? You had a few buses. Three. Yeah. Three. So what was that like going from one to the three buses? How how did your life change operationally running three buses? It taught me a lot about how to manage people. You know, I had to quickly go from not running a truck to trying to manage the fleet of trucks. Um, I knew right away that I wanted to build a commissary so that the trucks all came to one place to get their food centralized. That way the consistency was as, uh, you know, there was no room for air there. Um, and teaching people how to cook a hamburger and fries after all the stuff is kind of put together is a little bit easier than saying, Hey, I need you to go make a two-time recipe of ketchup or one-time recipe of pickles. There's a lot of room for air there. Yeah. So um, that taught me a lot and it kind of helped me set up for the restaurant part because we knew that we wanted to do more than one restaurant when we started the restaurants. So we built the first restaurant with a commissary in it. And as you see behind us, there's a van, refrigerated van. That van leaves every morning and goes, delivers the product to all the other three stores. Remind me to get some video footage or a photo sure. of that so we can get some B-roll for the listeners. Um, it's like a mini bus, but it's a van. <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to make sure. This is a really great space. I'll be sure to walk around and get some B-roll because it's a really creative. And uh, there's, there is video now. So if you guys are listening to this, the podcast, if you're listening to uh, this podcast on iTunes, just scroll down to the show notes that are right there in the audio in the player and there, there'll be a link to YouTube you can go check out the video Sweet. please subscribe and uh, I gotta be better about reminding my guests where to, or my listeners what to do uh, <laughs> so um, one thing I'm curious about sure. uh, when it comes to the food trucks how long did it take you to scale from one to three well I brought on a partner um, and that really jumped up the scale pretty quick I brought him on 2012 and he's a financial partner no operational experience in fact doesn't have any experience in this industry at all um he was a customer of mine and just loved the food loved the story behind it and wanted to help me grow so he helped me go from one to three trucks pretty quick because the second truck was really intended for catering the first truck was meant to stay on the streets okay as soon as i got the second truck into production I got a call from the uni University of Houston saying, hey, we want your truck to be parked at our UC center 
for the next year and a half. Whoa. And so I was like, well, shit, I need a third truck. <laughs> yeah. That's good and my problem, partner. Though. Yeah. My partner was like, yeah, let's get a third truck. So this truck. partner was you coming, like, what did you bring to the table? Was it money? Money. Yeah. Uh, did you guys have an operations agreement? Mm-hmm. What did yeah. that look like? You know, it was uh, uh, more in my favor once the payback was set up and he has no operational control at all. So, so what, what was the payback? What what did it look like? What should if we're looking to get money? Uh, we're at one food truck. We're looking to scale the multiple food trucks. We come into this scenario. How do we protect ourselves? Uh, what 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 approach did you take? So for me, I wanted to sell it because I wanted a partner to help grow the brick and mortar side, and so I set it up to where um, he would become fifty fifty owner with me in of the entire business of the entire business. With a promise to help me get to at least one brick and mortar and multiple food trucks. And so he started off as an investor, uh, quickly turned into a partner once we realized we needed uh, to keep scaling this. And we set it up to where not only I have 100% operational control, which I, my lawyers and he was... Um, very much uh, willing to to sign with that because he doesn't know how to run a restaurant, yeah. and he bought this knowing he bought bought it for me, not yeah. necessarily for it, but he, he believed in he you. Believed he in was me. investing in you, yeah. And so he didn't want um, that to be something that I had to worry about, as well as my lawyers didn't either. Um, which I suggest to anybody who's partnering with anyone. That doesn't know how to run the business. Yeah, I love I love talking to him and taking advice from him and all that, but I don't have to apply it if I don't see it fitting for our business. So that was set up, and then we, he was um, gracious enough not to be over um, greedy when it comes to the payout. So once he was paid back, um, it was set up to me. Even though we're fifty fifty, I get seventy percent of the profits, and he gets thirty percent. Because he wasn't trying to get rich off this. He yeah. was just trying to help me out. And um, everyone I've talked to is like, how do you have an arrangement where it's 50-50, but you get 70-30 <laughs> of the profits? And it's because he's such a good guy yeah. and money wasn't his motivation. It was strictly, how do I help this kid take this business? How did you find this guy? He was just a customer that yeah. came to the food truck. I love this when this happens. And it's something that I try to remind my listeners of constantly. You never know who your investors are going to be. So treat every one of your customers like they are your future investor. 100%. And if you have that mentality, like you just, and when the time comes when you come looking, when you go looking for it, you'll be surprised where it comes from. You know, it's so powerful. Yeah. Um, anything else? Well, actually, one more question that something that comes up a lot on the show. A lot of people who went the food truck route don't always necessarily suggest going that route. I think a lot of people think that that's a easier path mm-hmm. um, to the doing the brick and mortar. And I think there's a lot of just hidden headaches that people just don't consider. Yeah. Would you agree with that? Would you still yeah. do the same exact path you took today or would you do no. something differently? I think I got lucky with timing because it was hot, new in and Houston. And that's another thing is like if a food truck today in, in 2020 it isn't the same doesn't have the same buzz. Doesn't have the same coolness and uh, what's I don't even know the word. Just, yeah, uh, it's it's fresh. It's, it's not it's nostalgia different. either, but it's it's just something that it, it, at the time, 2010, it was like new and cool and yeah, hip. Exactly. I want to be hip. I want to yeah, trendy. That's the perfect yeah. word. It's, it was trendy in 2010 because you're watching it on TV. You're seeing you know these businesses that it, are. It seems obtainable, you yep. know, because it's lower overhead and it's just, obviously that's the way to go, right? But uh, not the case. Yeah. No, I mean, honestly, uh, I never made a dollar 
Um, we, you know, with weather and um, um, all the maintenance that it goes into maintaining the truck itself, um, we are never able to sell. And the key to the game is days of sale, right? Not only for the 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 the, the money side of it, but for the food side. If you're open more, your rotation of of product and freshness is so much better. If I'm open like three days a week, and yeah. what do I do with the product for the next four days exactly. I'm off? Like, yeah. I um, I knew that my plan was greater than the food truck, and I was always going towards the brick and mortar. And so um, I think a food truck is great to have for an existing business if you use it for marketing. Hype. And um, as a, a uh, extension of catering. Yep. Um, but past that, do not expect to make a dollar on it. Don't expect to get out in the streets and sell five grand worth of food. Like even in my heydays, um, I don't see how anyone could be yeah. profitable. I think the, the new solution that you're seeing a lot more people go towards, which I would recommend is getting involved with farmers markets and pop-ups yes. uh, because there's even less overhead involved with that. And um, it's just a great way to, to, to put, to test the market. Like I have this thing, I think it might work. Like there's just so little overhead to get involved. Just literally ask a friend if you can use their space, yeah. do an event. It's that easy. Uh, it's a great way to start establishing your brand, you know, um, as well as ghost kitchens. Yeah. That's interesting too. You know, I've been talking to a couple guys cause we've been toying around with the idea. We have great spaces, we have extra space. We have mornings. We have evening. Like, ghost kitchens are going to be the new thing. I mean, um, landlords. How do you feel about that? You know, I th- I love it because there's an ad- you're adapting, right? Yeah. Like, the landlord does not care. They want the rent. Yeah. And uh, the common area maintenance, what are called cams in the industry, they are continually going up every year. And there's not many deals that are inked nowadays that are putting a cap on cams. And you're seeing a lot of people who are getting into leases that their common area maintenance charges are equal to their base rent. So what exactly is common area maintenance? So like when you walk outside my building, you see lights that are not powered by my electric. They're the, the center. There is um, groundskeepers who you know pick up yep. trash cans. If there landscaping, was landscaping, snow blowing, plowing, if you're all in that north. stuff. Yeah. And then taxes. Gotcha. So they're called when you're looking at your lease, they're called triple nets too. There's all kinds of names for it. So you're saying those are continuing to rise. So you're trying to find other ways to create business with what you already have. Yeah. Because I have this space. It's 3000 square feet. I'm open from 11 to nine. I have plenty of hours. I'm paying rent 24 hours a day. Yeah. So I need to figure out how to use my space appropriately. Now, we have been working on ghost kitchens for ourselves, but also bringing in other people and using my space. I mean, my commissary kitchen is only used from 4.30 a.m. to about noon every day. From noon to 4.30 a.m. the next day, it's not. And I, you know, I see that as an area of opportunity for growth for us. If you're in Houston... And you, yeah, if you're looking for some <laughs> space to cook, we got we got somebody for you. That's for um, sure. Okay, so anything else you want to mention? Did I cut you short with the ghost kitchen thought? Or not really? No, I okay. just think you've got to be nowadays when you're looking at spaces, then they're creeping up into you know you're paying sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety. Some some people are crazy enough to pay hundred dollars a square foot. 
you got to think of what you're going to do for 24 no, hours a day. you're absolutely right, man. So we haven't even talked about the first brick and mortar. That was open 2013. Shoot, five and a half years ago. So How many years did it take you to go from? 2014. 2014. Yeah. So six and a half years, you said. How have you scaled? What was the first brick and mortar like? Take us through any, anything you want to talk about at this point. Like, what do you want to bring to the conversation? Now's the time to get it out. Okay. So, yeah, we're summer of 2014. We decide to open up our first brick and mortar. We take advantage of the theme of what we are called, Bernie's Burger Bus. We decide uh, with a great architect to come in here and figure out how to keep a bus as part of our theme. Um, which was very challenging in this first location. Uh, there's pictures in the restaurant that show a crane with a bus swinging through a window and under pillars, and uh, it's up over our tea station right there. But yeah, the uh, challenges of this first one. I'll try to get some of these photos in the, in the, dude, the video too. That guy was on meth. <laughs> like seriously, he was he was geeked out of his mind. He oh, smoked man. probably 17 cigarettes. While trying to figure out where he was going to put this through, he jumped on the crane and within three minutes, no joke, he had this thing swinged into a 180 and up in the building. Like it took him so long to figure out how to do it. But when he got on that machine, it was like watching an artist. (laughs) He picked up that bus, ripped it off the, the drive track. Swung it a direct 180. The landlords are out here watching. Everyone's watching because he's thinking this guy's going to hit pillars outside. He swings it up underneath this thing without getting too high. No one's helping him, and he slides it in. They drop it on these little rollers, and they wheel it in and put it on a cement curb. And He's done ne- it a couple times, huh? Never. <laughs> well, never a bus. Never a bus, and never into a building. But right. he, yeah, he figured it out. Um, he was a tweaker, but it was, <laughs> it was pretty awesome. So what were the biggest challenges uh, in going to a brick-and-mortar that you weren't anticipating? This is your first brick-and-mortar location, your, your first... You know, I'm lucky I had those mentors in life and I've opened up places with them. So I had the restaurant experience. I think it was actually harder for me to do the food truck because I'm like, where am I going to park this every day? There's a little bit more uh, on edge when it came to the food truck and the scheduling of that. You get into a routine with a brick and mortar. Like you, everything's the same every day. And And cooks are standing on flat ground (laughs) with air conditioning. Right. And I can kind of relate to what it's like to be in a new spot every day with the podcast. I'm traveling. I'm kind of like, you know, the food truck of, of podcasts. Yeah. And you're having to set up and figure your equipment. Where am I going to plug it in? Exactly. Like you you lose sight of how, how, beneficial it is just to have routine and consistency in your life so i totally get that um but this was easier the challenge for me really was how do i present this to the public because this is my first time having more than just the food as the experience right because i have to uh i want to break bread right i want to have a space that we have full service so the waiter waitress element was a little challenging for me because i didn't want it to seem pretentious but I did want people to have the ability to ask questions and have an education. And um, that came from my server. So that I put a big emphasis on that. Um, but I had started off this thing, and it wasn't right away, but it was about two years into the business. Uh, once we got the second food truck, um, it was building a culture. And um, that culture for me is super important. And it's a, it's a mission statement that I have that it's on all of our... Papers for new hires. All of our managers know it by heart. 
Um, it's called our mission, vision, and passion, and it's our MVP. So our mission is to serve the best burger and fries on the planet. Our vision is to be the most dominant burger company on the planet. And the most important, our passion is to make people feel special. Mm. And it starts with our staff. It starts with the people in the building and make them feel like we care about them, that we want to take care of them, that this is a place that they want to be in. Because when they get to go to the, the guests, man, that hospitality is already accepted in the building before we unlock the doors and it it translates really easily onto the guests and um, the guests are part of that you know, making people feel special. But I knew that it had to start in the doors, closed doors first. I had to motivate my kitchen to come in and work four thirty in the morning. Yeah. I had to uh, motivate uh, them to put in the long hours when it came to working in here as well as jumping on the food truck still. Cause we still have food trucks. Um, I had to figure out a way to create a culture and that, uh, culture was uh, a base off this thing called the Oz principles. Okay, and it's uh, really great if anyone wants to, from a business standpoint, they're um, it's really restaurant focused, but um, you could put it into any business. But they're called the Oz principles, and they suggest finding what your your mission, your vision, and your passion is. And I I thought about that statement a lot, and the first two are easy. Where where is this resource you're talking about? Where can we find it? Man, I had it a book. Um, it's a book. I'll um, find it. Yeah. Um, I was curious. I want to be able to link to it. It's great. Um, and so um, I knew the first two were going to be easy, but the third one was challenging passion. for me. Yeah, the passion. How, what I'm passionate because I love the food, but what's the cultural passion? How can you translate that passion? Yeah. How can you make that passion echo throughout everybody in your organization? And that's what it is. Yeah. It's, it's a people business. Yeah. I got into this business for food. Yeah. I love food. I love cooking. I love nourishing people and feeding people. But that's nothing. The business is people. Mm. It's the people you work with. How do you motivate them to put forth 110% every day and to be passionate about telling your story? So how do you motivate them to put forth that effort and to be passionate about your story? You know, to me, it's taking care of them, mm. you know, caring about what their family is going through, you know, how do you show them you care? I try to get to know everybody. I try and spend as much time as I can with all my staff and there's 130 of them. So, you know, I don't do it as well as I did back then, but I still, you know, all my cooks, I try and get in the kitchen with them and cook with them. I try to work with the front of the house staff and, and just get to know who they are and care about their lives. Ask them questions retain that knowledge so that I could follow up and ask them more questions. How are things going with this certain situation? Um, because to me, these guys put in more time with me than they do their own families. And I need to make it special for us. This is, I am here a lot. And so I want, I want to feel good. Yeah. And I want to be with people who want to be here too. And there's something I learned, um, about people is, you know, um, not only is this a, a, a people business, but um, you have to have passion to be successful in this business. And um, I hire passion over skill. So, like, most of my cooks have never cooked before, but they wanted to, mm. you know, and they wanted to learn. how. Why to- is that so valuable, that, that passion, that, that desire? Because you're a robot. Mm. You're doing the same thing over and over again. And you can't have bad attitude when doing that because every time you do it over again, you get more mad, mm-hmm. you get more angry. 
Um, these guys, every single one of my cooks is passionate about what they're doing. They do not want anyone to walk up to them and go, what the fuck is this? Yeah. You know, they have honor mm. behind their food. Um, and integrity, I, right? Integrity. Yeah. Yeah. Great word. Um, and uh, I feel like we, by providing that atmosphere, uh, not only in, in how we take care of people, but how we hire people when it comes to, hey, we're looking for people who are passionate, yeah. who love our brand. You know, um, it's an extensive menu test to get hired here because I want you to fall in love with the food. I want you to fall in love with the experience here. And then I'll teach you the burgers. Yeah, and it's also like a, you know, it's a, would you say it was an extensive menu test? I think so because it's a super extensive test to even get hired. Well, that's, I want to make sure I heard you right because I think it's really important to make getting hired hard. Yeah. You want it to be a filter. You want it to just to weed out those who aren't taking it seriously. If you're not willing to memorize every ingredient of every item on my menu, then you don't make the cut. Yeah. You know, like, Hire slow, fail, uh, fire fast. Yeah, exactly. So one thing I'm really curious about, you're at four locations now. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. Four locations in six years. Um, with the Scratch Kitchen, how have you overcome scaling with Scratch? That the, must be difficult. It is very difficult, but the commissary answered it all. I make my ketchup in one place, my mustard, mayonnaise, pickles. The beef is ground in one location. The buns are made by a local baker, delivered every day. The quality of our product is so easy for me to come and taste at the ground level versus having to go to all the other stores and be like, how's your ketchup today? I know. Yeah. I know this ketchup is the same right now in all four locations. So you're, you're batch producing this for all locations every Correct. day. Correct. And, you know, as we're scaling, we're trying to figure out how we're going to scale even more if we want to. And so... Um, for years, I started researching because people wanted our ketchup, for in particular, in a bottle. Mm. And so I started doing research how I would do that and not add preservatives because all my food is scratch made. And so it was very challenging. There's about you know three or four dozen companies in the United States that will be co-packers and make your product, but ninety percent of them want to add something to keep the shelf life, and they want to change your recipe. So it spends less time in their kettle or whatever it is. I found a few of them that don't do stuff like that, that want to keep small batch, that want to keep their integrity. And so I found a bottler here in Houston. Happened to be great that she's here. Um, Small batch. She bottles our ketchup for us. Um, We had to send it off to Texas A&M, and I had to get a manufacturer's license. And there's a whole process to being a – a bottler. Is there is it a tough process? No, it's just money. <laughs> yeah. It's like anything. Um but you know, that taught me a ton. And now I know all of our products we've had tested. Yeah. All of our products we've had a third party make them. Not only to see if the quality would change, but then to have shelf life testing done. So that if I ever decided to open up in New York or Beijing, I I know a way I can get my product consistently, which yep. is the big answer. How do I consistently get it there without adding preservatives and changing my integrity? Were there any unseen hurdles you had to get over when it came to getting your product bottled and on into retail situations? Like what, what didn't you know that you know now that you can share with my listeners? I would say the, the most challenging part was the process of getting it from the bottle into the stores. The hardest part is 
um, making sure not only uh, there's still money left for you because most stores require a distributor and you can't self-distribute. The distributor takes a cut. The bottler takes a cut. The store takes a cut. And when you're left at the end of the day, you're left with pennies. Yeah. Um, and so if you're going to do something like that, just be ready to make sure you're ready to climb that ladder slowly <laughs> yeah. because the unfortunate side of our us doing it is we're only in Houston right now. So bottling it for we were in Whole Foods and Kroger and but we're only in their local locations. Yeah. And so when everyone takes their little cut, it's like, why am I waste spinning my wheels Do you think doing it, it? Is it marketing? Maybe just getting your brand out in stores and seeing the Bernie's logo? It does great here. Yeah. That's the side of it is like I didn't want to pull it in the sense of like it still does well. But it takes a lot of my time having to call the bottler, call the label person, and then call the distributor the to pay. What's your time worth? Yeah, and I'm like, am I taking my focus off the restaurants, which are extremely more profitable and lucrative for the amount of time that I'm having to put in? Versus now, if I'm ten years from now and I've started franchising or I start building more corporate stores out of the state. I've got the connections to bring back that bottling. I pulled it off in the you know, proper way and all that. Um, but I just didn't feel like for the 30 stores that I was in in Houston, it was worth my time. Gotcha. So if I open up another you know, bunch of franchises out, uh, bottling, I, would, I still have the license. I'll so probably still do is it. is that the future for you? Is that what you're looking to do? The sword franchise keeps coming up. Is that in you the know, works? I'm, I'm, uh, I'm on the fence. We Why? are... Well, because of quality, you know, I, I don't want the quality of the culture to go down. And of course, I don't want to misrepresent my grandfather's name. Mm. I mean, it's uh, I've done the four stores because I feel confident because I've got enough great people working with me. That's why I've said, OK, let's do number three. Let's do number four, because I have people to promote within and I feel confident about that. But then you start looking at franchises and I start looking at some that have franchised maybe too soon or without the right infrastructure. And that stuff scares me because there's a lot of room for air. Um, and, you know, I have one more big thing that I'd like to do with this brand um, in the city of Houston before I even... Are you allowed to say what it is? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, um, I am trying my best to open up a... We have an amazing Chinatown here. And I want to do how like McDonald's or Burger King does their stores in China or they have like 30% their core menu and 70% is like inspired. I want to do that out in Chinatown. And I want to take my culinary expertise and my love for Asian culture, both all Japanese, Vietnamese, Chinese, and bring that flavor to Bernie's and the burger oh, realm. Be awesome. So this is your field trips we're talking about. And I think, yeah. it, so one thing I wanted to, to mention before we wrapped it up and got to the speed round uh, is the significance of keeping it fresh. I think that's one thing that you do really well. Um, why is it so important to keep things fresh? I mean, you, you have your, your standard menu mm-hmm. that is fixtures, right? Yep. But then you have your fun side. That, why, why is it so important to be able to, to incorporate some level of creativity in keeping it fresh on your menu? Two reasons, really. One, selfishly. Uh, because I want to be creative yeah. and, and keep doing stuff. But we have, you know, over 10 years, almost 10 years now, um, since the first inception of the food truck, 
we have a lot of people who've been coming to us and they look at those field trips as a new thing to try on our menu. Um, and I try not to do the I love same how it's thing on brand twice. too. You know, it has like to be yeah. a field trip, right? You're going to go learn something and bring it back, right? And incorporate it to your menu. It used to be we take a globe and spin it, and wherever my finger land, that's how I got inspired. Nice. Uh, I've gotten a little off of that because I'll get inspired other ways, and I find that like I'll create menus for like months in advance, and then when we get to the month of doing it, I'm like, nah, I don't want to do that. Yeah. So um, we kind of keep it loose, and I let it kind of flow between the staff too because i have a you know majority of people i work with are 20 years younger than me so i try and keep a fresh pulse on what they are looking for so that's, that's how the hot cheeto burger for. i was hoping that would be the reason i mean when you have these people working for you like they also need to stay engaged like how are you going to keep it interesting for them how are you going to give them an opportunity to put a little bit of their stank on the menu you know oh, what i mean yeah. and people that is the power of somebody having like to have your creation on a menu is like the ultimate compliment, is it not? Yeah, totally. Is it for for a cook, yeah. I mean, you know, um, when you're able to take that and put it on someone's menu, there's a sense of pride yeah. for however long that special runs. That like, yeah, that's mine. But, yeah, that's mine. Like, that's you mine. tell your friends, come check out my my burgers on the menu. Like, yeah, you know, like this that sense of ownership, which is you know, treat it like you own it. Someday you will, you know. Right. Yeah. But the 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 hard part, and I I, I listened to uh, Chef Grant uh, Atkins, Atkins yeah. talk about I Thomas restaurant group. Yeah, he was talking about Thomas Keller and how like he created a dish at French Laundry, and Thomas Keller asked him, "Are you okay if that's mine now?" <laughs> and he arrogantly said, "I think uh, I'm probably misquoting him, but he was like, I got plenty of more where that comes from.'" So. <laughs> yeah. um, yeah, they all have to be comfortable with the fact that it's going to be a Bernie's creation and it might even be taken on so well that it makes it onto the menu or a secret menu and uh, they got to be okay with, you know, that. But everyone, you know, they just love to see it. Yeah, it's I exciting. love it, man. I love this conversation. I wrap up every free-flowing free portion of the conversation by asking my guests um, how you've transformed. The mission of this podcast is to inspire empower and transform the industry so how have you transformed over the past what well, i don't know now 20 plus years of being in the industry i have gone i've come from being a cook seeking mentors to now being a cook who is the mentor and you're on the melting you're on the, the melting pot of mentors i said this restaurant unstoppable but boom it's right there it's what it's all about it's right there what is it like to be a mentor um I think it keeps, uh, for me, it keeps me on my toes. It keeps me honest. It keeps me uh, making sure that I make the right decisions and um, and paying credit where credit's due. You know, I, I never uh, want to feel like I'm the one who got to this place. I have definitely stood on the shoulders of many great people who have taught me all these things to get me here. It is my job, just like it was their job, to teach this to other people. And so I make sure at every opportunity I can with whether it be a situation in the weight area, whether it be in the kitchen, whether it be just a a lesson that I was lucky enough to learn how to do better or whatever. I want to make sure that I share that with these guys. I'm so happy you said that because when I say transform the industry, the way I know we're going to do it is by taking this value of it being an obligation for us to share our knowledge to to pay it forward because we us all 
our collective of everyone that came before us. Mm. And as soon as we recognize and understand that and we lean into it, change can happen so much faster because we're going to be so much more generous with our knowledge. And the faster we can pass it down, the faster we can share our mistakes with the next generation and change the values. Like the power is just infinite, man. And it's so powerful. And thank you for contributing to this, this, this balance. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you to all the uh, (laughs) chefs that I, Probably give him a shout off. Give yeah. him a shout out if you want. Chef uh, uh, Miles McMath and Justin Young and uh, Jimmy Gentry and Erling Jensen and uh, the former uh, chef who's no longer with us, Joseph Carey. All those guys have been such huge inspirations uh, to me. And um, I take everything that they taught me, even though I might have looked like I wasn't paying attention. Um, I was, and I use it everyday life well i hope they i hope they hear this man and we're gonna take one more quick break to thank our sponsors and we're gonna bust out a true speed round it's the entrepreneurial myth and i'm sure you're familiar with it it's the idea that when you open your own restaurant life is gonna get easy because you get to do exactly what it is that you love whether that's front of house or back of house and then reality kicks in right you've got to do all this other stuff that comes with owning a business like taxes hr payroll, really boring stuff. That's where Gusto comes in. Gusto makes payroll, taxes, HR actually easy for small business. And if you want to add on 401k or health benefits, it's a breeze. Those old school clunky payroll providers just were not built for the modern small business. Not to mention, you've got to compete with the big guys, but how do you compete with the big guys when you don't have big guy bucks? Well, with Gusto, that's how. Get back to doing what it is you love and let Gusto handle the rest. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, you'll get your first three months free when you run your first payroll. That's Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. Again, Gusto.com slash Unstoppable. I'm sure you felt it before, right? That pressure, that intense pressure to have your restaurant website on point. But you should have that pressure. You should feel this way because your restaurant website is so important. It is your first impression and it represents your entire brand. But here's the thing. You're not a web developer. You're a restaurant owner. So how can you be held to these standards? Well, with Bento Box, that's how. Bento Box empowers you to own your presence, profit, and guest relations, all with full support, integration, and analytics. And here's something that's really great about Bento Box is that it prioritizes website accessibility. So with Bento Box, you can get a certified accessible restaurant website that follows ADA guidelines and supports your business because this is how you show your people you care. Beyond that, Bento Box websites drive 70% more traffic. They see seven times more conversions and get five times return on investment. What else can I say? Well, how about over 5,000 restaurants in all 50 states and around the world are using this platform with its suite of tools. Head over to getbento.com slash unstoppable. And when you use that link, you'll save 50% off your setup. Again, that's getbento, G-E-T-B-E-N-T-O.com slash unstoppable. We're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Passion. What is your biggest weakness? My heart. Mm. What is one question you ask or thing you look for during the interview process? What do you love? You know, what, what makes you excited to wake up every day and do, um, yeah, that's a tough one. I, it is I, a tough I change one. it all that's up. That's why I ask it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a way to be, a way to act, a core value. Yeah, I, I, I teach them about our, our MVP, honestly. I, I try and instill that because not only is it something for our culture, but it's a way to make a decision in our building. Meaning like if something happens and you have to think, if I'm not here, you can't ask me, run it through the filter of the MVP. I love it, man. What is one uncommon standard of service you teach your team? So this is something that's common within your four walls to go above and beyond what's expected, but not common within the industry. Um, make people feel special. How do you do that? Get to know your tables, get to know your guests, get to know your staff, get to know, uh, make it personal, make it personal, get to know them because, uh, we're in the hospitality industry. I love it. Hospitable. Yes. Well, a lot of us in this industry and I hate to go off on a little tangent, but they're angry. They're angry at the patrons. They're yeah. angry. Don't be angry. Just for, here. just for fun someday, you guys listening to this, look up the synonyms of hospitality. Yes, please. Warmth, yeah. generosity. The list goes on. You get the idea. The next question I have for you is, what is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or restaurant operator? Soul of a Chef. Ooh. Michael Roman. Michael Roman. Yeah, great book. Changed my life. Nice. Literally, those times I was talking about crime, I was reading that book. And that... This, the chapter about the master chef test yes. happened to be about a person in Memphis who I knew, a chef. Uh, Michael Simon section in the French Laundry. Yes. Life changing. Dude, amazing book. Um, on audio, yes. by the way. So you can Great. listen to that book. That is awesome. I've listened yes. to it. I've read it three times, but I've listened to it. If you have not gotten a membership to Audible, head over to audibletrial.com slash unstoppable. I think it's like for like fourteen ninety five. A yeah, month, I think that's right. You get one credit, and if you if you can make it, you owe it to yourself to consume one book a month that will make you a better person. And you can do it while you're li- like driving to work or wor- prepping. Just the, va- the 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 significance of audiobooks. I mean, it yeah. sounds like I could I can name a bunch of them. But yeah. yeah, awesome. All right, I'll link to that in the show notes. And uh, the next question I have for you is: What is one thing you feel restaurateurs don't do well enough or often enough? Uh, taking the time to get to know your staff. I love it. Uh, name one service you've hired. This is a person, a resource, a tool, somebody who's an expert that you've hired for their expertise. Uh, I'm going to name two because I think it's important in the restaurant industry. A great lawyer and a great accountant. Yes. And uh, can you get specific who you've went to? Uh, yeah, I've got my lawyer is uh, Robert and Jeremy Levine, uh, the law office of Robert and Jeremy Levine. And... Uh, Jeff Garcia, Food CPA. Beautiful. And I'm going to start um, cataloging all these recommendations. That's why I started asking That's those awesome. questions, just to help people connect, help good people connect with good people is my goal there. So the next question I have for you is, what is one technology you've adopted within your restaurant? So this is a, not a person or a service, but like a, a service as a software, a technology that you're leveraging within your business. Uh, a company called Chowley. And Chowley takes all those crappy tablets that you have all over your restaurant and integrates them so nicely so that they just print to your kitchen. And you do not have to have a staff member grab an uh, iPad and take the Uber Eats or the DoorDash order and type it in again. What's the biggest way this has impacted your business? Uh, It keeps me from having one person who's just dedicated to the tablets. Yes. This goes straight to the kitchen prints. So you would have somebody on staff that was staring at tablets. Uh, we'd always have to have almost two bartenders because we, the only place we had set up, because this is, we set up our restaurants pre these delivery services really in Houston. Um, our bar was the only space that we could provide to have all those tablets. And 
we sometimes, especially on Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights, we would have to have a second bartender who's literally uh, they're helping the bartender do stuff in Bar store, stuff. but really they're taking orders from a tablet and typing them into the computer. And, and how much does it cost you for you to have that person on for a night? You know, with taxes and everything, it's probably 12, 13 bucks an hour. So, uh, you know, yeah. you're looking at at least eight hours or five, yeah, we'll 90, say five hours. 90 bucks to a hundred bucks. Yeah. Times yeah. 30. Yeah. <laughs> you know, times and, 12. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when people are saying, well, how can I justify spending money on these tools and these softwares? Well, how can you not? afford it is the question it's like a hundred bucks a month for five or six yeah. platforms yep. it's super good so, so this is the last question are you ready for ready it? it's a doozy if you got the news you'd be leaving this world tomorrow all the memories of you your work and your restaurants would be lost with your departure except for three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy for your grandfather's legacy mm-hmm. what would those three things be um higher uh, slow and fire fast. One. If you can't change people, change people. Two. And uh, the third would be bone it like you own it and drive it like you stole it. Yes. I have loved this conversation, <laughs> Justin. Uh, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. Who is somebody you respect and admire in this industry and believe it would make a great guest mentor like you made for me today? Uh, I would say the person that I respect uh, the most um, is some. I'm going to help you out with this hookup. Uh, is one yes. of the owners of Torchy's Tacos. Yes, his name is Farrell Cubina. He is uh, one of them. He get you closer to the Mike. Uh, mm-hmm. I can't even remember his last name. Ripka. I think it's Ripka. Or Ripka. Something. Yeah. Rip- I don't know Mike personally, but I'm good friends with one of the other owners, one of the five partners of Torchy's. Uh, Farrell is a mogul. Uh, he does all the locations uh, searching for uh, the company. Nice. We could do a deep dive in how to vet a location. Dude, he like he blows me away every time I have a conversation with him. Hit me with his name one more time. Farrell, F-A-R-R-E-L Kubina. K-U-B-E-N-A. Look out, brother. I'm coming after you. He's awesome, dude. I'd love to get you on the show and let the folks at home know, how can we connect with you? Maybe we want to come join your team. Maybe we're in the, the Houston area and we want to come learn from a mentor. What's the best way to connect? Go to our website, berniesburgerbus.com. We're, uh, we have a hiring section on there. Um, there's ways to get in touch with us directly and have conversations with us or just stop in the store. I love talking to people face to face. That's any, the best way to do any it. Any social handles I can throw in the show notes? Yeah, we're all, uh, it's all the same. Bernie's Burger Bus on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I think we're on Snapchat. I have no idea. Awesome. Yeah. I've, I've loved this conversation. Thanks, Thank you man. again for taking the time to share your story, your knowledge, your mentorship. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks, man. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. Well, there you have it. Another one in the archive here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Justin Turner, thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, sharing your story, sharing your values. I, I really love what came out of today's conversation. Lots of little details. I need to be better about getting those details. And I think that came out in today's conversation, getting specific about your process for setting your kitchen stations up for the day, diving into uh, the food truck world and the details there and um, the advice on uh, getting operational control. I thought that was great. And I think the really the overarching lesson in today's conversation is this mentality of we are this uh, we are the bipod. We are the byproduct of those who came before us, uh, and we owe them, you know, for that. And the best way to 
pay them back is by paying it forward to the next generation. And Justin gets that. It came out in today's conversation. I also love the emphasis he put on on relationships. And at the end of the day, business is all about relationships. Justin gets that. It came out in today's conversation. And just really great stuff. Thank you again to Justin. So I hope you guys enjoyed this, this conversation. Uh, one thing I need to be better about is uh, training you, my listeners. So the way that this podcast stays on the air is through my sponsors. They make up about 90% of my revenue. And I need to train you guys to, to know that if you're you're interested in any of the tools that are being on the show as sponsors, specifically right now, we got Bento Box, we got Gusto, we got Margin Edge. Go check out those tools. Use my links or at the even better, I'll make an introduction. That's probably the best way to, to show these sponsors that we're paying attention, right? Uh, so I, I cannot stress enough the, the importance of that. Also, whenever there's a book or tool mentioned on the show organically, again, I'll make the introduction, use my links, that helps so much. And the last thing you can do to support this podcast uh, is share the word. Uh, the rates for my sponsorship, the the reach all depends on you guys getting out there and making sure other people know. And the more people that listen, the better I can do, the, the more the more I can do to serve you. So help me help you by sharing this episode with anybody and everybody you know aspiring to be great in the industry. Let's transform the industry. That's the mission. I need your help. I think with that said, um, we can say goodbye and uh, just thank you guys so much for sticking around this long and continuing to listen and couldn't do without you. Until next time, peace out.